The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Book One, The Coming of the Martians. Chapter Nine, The Fighting Begins. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another Public Domain Playhouse rendition of the classic H.G. Wells story that changed everything. Brought a whole new age of science fiction writing to mind, The War of the Worlds. Of course, this is also the author that gave us The Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and so many other memorable tales. The Time Machine. He broke the tropes when he made them. Absolutely a giant in literature, and that's one of the reasons why Public Domain Playhouse wants to pay homage to him. Public Domain Playhouse is kind of a cross between a podcast, a teleplay, and an ebook experience. I am actually reading verbatim everything that happens within the story that Wells wrote. I do add my own flair with sound effects and music, and hopefully that's something that you all appreciate. If so, make sure you smash that subscribe button so you never miss an episode of Public Domain Playhouse. We've got a lot of good things coming up in store. But for today, one of the ways that we try and keep this as a podcast is by taking a look at Wells's personal life, as well as his role as a literary icon. So we started off with his background as a kid and moving on as a young adult and eventually to become the writer that he is and still is known as today. Wells also wrote a lot of nonfiction, a lot of different kind of publicity pieces. He was a pacifist at heart who really wanted to believe in utopian societies. But he also created table games. He was the creator of the first miniature war game. So he was an interested and varied character. And one of the things that they called on him to do later on was to travel to Russia. Wells visited Russia in three years, 1914, 1920, and 1934. During his second visit, he saw his old friend Maxim Gorky, and with Gorky's help, he met Vladimir Lenin. In his book, Russia in the Shadows, Wells portrayed Russia as recovering from a total social collapse. As he said, quote, The completest that has ever happened to any modern social organization. On the 23rd of July, 1934, after visiting U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Wells went to the Soviet Union and interviewed Joseph Stalin for three hours for the New Statesman magazine, which was extremely rare at the time. Wells told Stalin how he had seen the happy faces of healthy people in contrast with his previous visit to Moscow in 1920. However, he also criticized the lawlessness, class discrimination, state violence, and absence of free expression. Stalin enjoyed the conversation and replied accordingly, and as the chairman of the London-based Pen Club, which protected the rights of authors to write without being intimidated, Wells hoped that his trip to the USSR would win Stalin over by the force of argument. But before he left, he realized that no reform was ever going to happen in the near future or indeed, ever at all. 
towards the end of his life, Wells' reputation declined a bit as he spent his later years promoting causes that were basically universally rejected by his contemporaries and, and younger authors whom he had previously inspired. In this connection, George Orwell actually said Wells was too sane to understand the modern world. G.K. Chesterton quipped, Mr. Wells is a born storyteller who has sold his birthright for a pot of message. Another note, Wells had diabetes and he was the co-founder in 1934 of the Diabetic Association, which is now Diabetes UK, the leading charity for people with diabetes in the United Kingdom. One other interesting note in Wells' final years, on the 28th of October, 1940, on the radio station KTSA in San Antonio, Texas, Wells took part in a radio interview with Orson Wells, no relation, who two years previously had performed a famous radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds, which we will be taking a look at in future editions of this particular story. During that interview by Charles C. Shaw at KTSA Radio Host, Wells admitted his surprise at the widespread panic that resulted from the broadcast, but acknowledged his debt to Wells for increasing sales of one of his more obscure titles. Wells died of unspecified causes on August 13, 1946, at the age of 79. He was living at home at 13 Hanover Terrace, overlooking Regent's Park in London. In his preface to the 1941 edition of The War in the Air, Wells had stated that his epitaph should be, I told you so, you damned fools. Wells' body was cremated at Golder's Green Crematorium on August 16, 1946. His ashes were subsequently scattered into the English Channel at Old Harry Rocks near Swanage in Dorset. A commemorative blue plaque in his honor was installed by the Greater London Council at his home in Regent's Park in 1966. When you join us next time for Chapter 10, which I won't reveal the title until later on, it's got to be a big secret, but if you join us next time, we'll take a look a little bit more intimately at Wells the Futurist and his political views that kind of led him to the, these beliefs, as well as his religious views. That should make for an interesting edition of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells by Public Domain Playhouse. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Bart, your narrator and guide through this edition. I hope you enjoy what you hear. Please let me know what you think. Before we proceed with Chapter 9, the fighting begins, and I know I'm champing at the bit too to get started at it because it sounds like it's going to be a great chapter, does it not? Before we jump into our chapter tonight, let's do a quick recap of what happened in Chapter 8. As you remember, he made it home back to his wife just in time to worry her. But on that Friday night, except for the Martians using a heat ray to kill a lot of people in Chapter 5, things were pretty ordinary. And it was pretty ordinary around all the rest of England. The news that a cylinder had been shot from Mars and landed on Earth doesn't get much attention and certainly isn't treated very seriously. For example, Henderson wired the newspaper to tell his story, but they thought it was a hoax and didn't want to run the article until they could confirm it with him. Of course, they couldn't confirm it with him 
because the Martians had incinerated him to ashes. Even the people who know about the cylinder aren't taking it very seriously. Sounds sort of familiar. Something life-threatening lurking in the shadows and people throwing all caution to the wind, not giving a tinker's cuss if it affects them or people around them. So even people who know about the cylinder aren't taking it very seriously. Some people try and even sneak up to it and get a look at the Martians. But they, dun-dun-dun, are never seen again. Of course, there's also some hammering sounds and construction going on in the pit, but that's probably nothing to worry about at all. Once again, it might be that disco ball we were talking about in the previous edition. It might be the big dance-off, the big finale coming up. So, though no one seems to care, the military does. And that makes everybody feel a little bit better. Quick! The military does take the threat seriously, and they come out in full force, occupying two bridges. I'm sure the military will be able to take care of things in no time at all, and the rest of the book will be made up of interesting recipes collected from his neighbors in Woking. Oh, by the way, a second cylinder has fallen, and once again, no one seems to care about that. So that's a quick recap of what happened on Friday night. Listening to the Martians hammering away in the pit, the military has shown up. They're in full force. Looks like it's going to be a showdown, folks. So let's get into it. Tonight, Public Domain Playhouse brings you H.G. Wells' immortal classic, The War of the Worlds, Book 1, The Coming of the Martians, Chapter 9, The Fighting Begins. Chapter 9, The Fighting Begins. Saturday lives in my memory as a day of suspense. It was a day of lassitude, too, hot and close, with, I am told, a rapidly fluctuating barometer. I had slept but little, though my wife had succeeded in sleeping, and I rose early. I went into my garden before breakfast and stood listening. But towards the common there was nothing stirring but a lark. The milkman came as usual. I heard the rattle of his chariot, and I went round to the side gate to ask the latest news. He told me that during the night the Martians had been surrounded by troops, and that guns were expected. Then a familiar reassuring note, I heard a train running towards Woking. They ought to be killed, said the milkman if that can possibly be avoided. I saw my neighbor gardening, chatted with him for a time, and then strolled in to breakfast. It was a most unexceptional morning. My neighbor was of the opinion that the troops would be able to capture or destroy the Martians during the day. It's a pity they make themselves so unapproachable, he said. It would be curious to know how they live on another planet. We might learn a thing or two. He came up to the fence and extended a handful of strawberries, for his gardening was as generous as it was enthusiastic. At the same time, he told me of the burning of the pine woods about the Byfleet golf links, 
They say, said he, that there's another of those blessed things fallen there, number two. But one's enough, surely. This lot'll cost the insurance people a pretty penny before everything's settled. Huh. He laughed with an air of the greatest good humor as he said this. The woods, he said, were still burning, and pointed out a haze of smoke to me. They will be hot underfoot for days on account of the thick soil pine needles and turf, he said, and then grew serious over poor Ogilvy. After breakfast, instead of working, I decided to walk down towards the common. Under the railway bridge, I found a group of soldiers, sappers, I think, men in small round caps, dirty red jackets unbuttoned, and showing their blue shirts, dark trousers, and boots, coming to the calf. They told me that no one was allowed over the canal, and looking along the road towards the bridge, I saw one of the cardigan men standing sentinel there. I talked with these soldiers for a time. I told them of my sight of the Martians on the previous evening. None of them had seen the Martians, and they had but the vaguest ideas of them, so that they plied me with questions. They said that they did not know who had authorized the movements of the troops. Their idea was that a dispute had arisen at the horse guards. The ordinary sapper is a great deal better educated than the common soldier, and they discussed the peculiar conditions of the possible fight with some acuteness. I described the heat ray to them, and they began to argue among themselves. Crawl up under cover and rush them, say I, said one. Get out, said another. What's cover against this here eight? Sticks to cook your... What we got to do is go as near as the ground will let us and then drive a trench. Blow your trenches. You always want trenches. You ought to have been born a rabbit, Snippy. Ain't they got any next then? Said a third abruptly, a little contemplative dark man smoking a pipe. I repeated my description. Octopuses, said he. That's what I calls them. Talk about fishermen, fighters of fish it is this time. It ain't no murder killing beasts like that, said the first speaker. Why not show the darn things straight off and finish them, said the little dark man. You can't tell what they might do. Where's your shells, said the first speaker. There ain't no time. Do it in a rush, that's my tip, and do it at once. So they discussed it. After a while I left them and went on to the railway station to get as many morning papers as I could. But I will not weary the reader with a description of that long morning and of the longer afternoon. I did not succeed in getting a glimpse of the common, for even Horsell and Chotham Church Towers were in the hands of the military authorities. The soldiers I addressed didn't know anything. The officers were mysterious as well as busy. I found people in the town quite secure again in the presence of the military and I heard for the first time from Marshall, the tobacconist, that his son was among the dead on the common. The soldiers had made the people on the outskirts of Horsell lock up and leave their houses. I got back to lunch about two, very tired for, as I have said, the day was extremely hot and dull, and in order to refresh myself, I took a cold bath in the afternoon. About half past four, I went up to the railway station to get an evening paper. 
for the morning papers had contained only a very inaccurate description of the killing of Stent, Anderson, Ogilvy, and the others, but there was little I didn't know. The Martians did not show an inch of themselves. They seemed busy in their pit, and there was a sound of hammering and an almost continuous streamer of smoke. Apparently they were busy getting ready for a struggle. Fresh attempts have been made to signal, but without success, was the stereotyped formula of the papers. A sapper told me it was done by a man in a ditch with a flag on a long pole. The Martians took as much notice of such advances as we should of the lowing of a cow. I must confess the sight of all this armament, all this preparation, greatly excited me. My imagination became belligerent and defeated the invaders in a dozen striking ways. Something of my schoolboy dreams of battle and heroism came back. It hardly seemed a fair fight to me at that time. They seemed very helpless in that pit of theirs. About three o'clock, there began the thud of a gun that measured intervals from Chertsey or Adelston. I learned that the smoldering pine wood into which the second cylinder had fallen was being shelled in the hope of destroying that object before it opened. It was only about five, however, that a field gun reached Chotham for use against the first body of Martians. About six in the evening, as I sat at tea with my wife in the summer house, talking vigorously about the battle that was lowering upon us, I heard a muffled detonation from the common, and immediately after a gust of firing. Close on the heels of that came a violent rattling crash quite close to us, that shook the ground, and starting out upon the lawn, I saw the tops of the trees about the Oriental College burst into smoky red flame, and the tower of the little church beside it slide down into ruin. The pinnacle of the mosque had vanished, and the roof line of the college itself looked as if a hundred-ton gun had been at work upon it. One of our chimneys cracked, as if a shot had hit it, flew, and a piece of it came clattering down the tiles and made a heap of broken red fragments upon the flower bed by my study window. I and my wife stood amazed. Then I realized that the crest of Mayberry Hill must be within range of the Martian's heat ray now that the college was cleared out of the way. At that, I gripped my wife's arm, and without ceremony ran her out into the road. Then I fetched out the servant, telling her I would go upstairs myself for the box she was clamoring for. We can't possibly stay here, I said, and as I spoke, the firing reopened for a moment upon the common. But where are we to go? said my wife in terror. I thought, perplexed. Then I remembered her cousins at Leatherhead. Leatherhead! I shouted above the sudden noise. She looked away from me downhill. The people were coming out of their houses, astonished. How are we to get to Leatherhead? She said. Down the hill, I saw a bevy of hussars ride under the railway bridge. 
three galloped through the open gates of the Oriental College. Two others dismounted and began running from house to house. The sun, shining through the smoke that drove up from the tops of the trees, seemed blood red and threw an unfamiliar, lurid light upon everything. Stop here, said I. You are safe here. And I started off at once for the spotted dog, for I knew the landlord had a horse and cart. I ran, for I perceived that in a moment everyone upon this side of the hill would be moving. I found him in his bar, quite unaware of what was going on behind his house. A man stood with his back to me, talking to him. I must have a pound, said the landlord, and I have no one to drive it. I'll give you two, said I, over the stranger's shoulder. What for? And I'll bring it back by midnight, I said. Lord, said the landlord. What's the hurry? I'm selling my bit of a pig. Two pounds and you bring it back. What's going on now? I explained hastily that I had to leave my home, and so secured the dog cart. At the time, it did not seem to me nearly so urgent that the landlord should leave his. I took care to have the cart there and then, drove it off down the road, and leaving it in charge of my wife and servant, rushed into my house and packed a few valuables such as a plate as we had, and so forth. The beech trees below the house were burning while I did this, and the palings of the road glowed red. While I was occupied in this way, one of the dismounted hussars came running up. He was going from house to house warning people to leave. He was going on as I came out of my front door, lugging my treasures, done up in a tablecloth. I shouted after him, What news? He turned, stared, bawled something about crawling out in a thing like a dish cover, and ran on to the gate of the house at the crest. A sudden whirl of black smoke driving across the road hid him for a moment. I ran to my neighbor's door and rapped to satisfy myself of what I already knew, that his wife had gone to London with him and had locked up their house. I went in again, according to my promise, to get my servant's box, lugged it out, clapped it beside her on the tail of the dog cart, and then caught the reins and jumped up into the driver's seat beside my wife. In another moment, we were clear of the smoke and noise, and spanking down the road the opposite slope of Mayberry Hill towards Old Woking. In front was a quiet, sunny landscape, a wheat field ahead on either side of the road, and the Mayberry Inn with its swinging sign. I saw the doctor's cart ahead of me. At the bottom of the hill, I turned my head to look at the hillside I was leaving. Thick streamers of black smoke shot with reds of red fire were driving up into the still air and throwing dark shadows upon the green treetops eastward. The smoke already extended far away to the east and west, to the Byfleet pine woods eastward, and awoking on the west. The road was dotted with people running towards us, and very faint now, but very distinct through the hot, quiet air. One heard the whir of a machine gun. It was presently stilled, and an intermittent cracking of rifles. Apparently the Martians were setting fire to everything within range of their heat ray. I am not an expert driver, 
and I had immediately to turn my attention to the horse. When I looked back again, the second hill had hidden the black smoke. I slashed the horse with the whip and gave him a loose rein until Woking and Send lay between us and that quivering tumult. I overtook and passed the doctor between Woking and Send. And there you have it. That's it for Chapter 9, The Fighting Begins. It's interesting that Wells kind of put us in the seat with the narrator driving madly with a cart and horse that he doesn't seem to be very familiar with to try and escape with his wife. And we don't actually hear or see any of the fighting. We just hear some of the shots being sent off in the background. So I guess we're going to have to wait and see whether or not it's a dance-off or indeed a firefight literally for the Martians a firefight as they like to incinerate everything within a certain radius. So I hope somebody tipped off the Federales that they needed to keep a safe distance. Social distancing with Martians is much much bigger than with human beings. Thank you for joining me for H.G. Wells's classic The War of the Worlds Chapter 9. I'm Bart, your narrator and guide, and speaking on behalf of Public Domain Playhouse, as always, we'll see you in the next chapter.